find out what the people who lived here called this place. As he sifts the earth they trod, finding the soil footprints of their cabins and tiny fragments of their tools, weapons and white clay pipes, he feels a profound admiration for them, and this stems in part from his Marxism. These people performed a critique of a brutal capitalistic enslavement system, and they rejected it completely. They risked everything to live in a more just and equitable way, and they were successful for ten generations. One of them, a man named Charlie, was interviewed later in Canada. He said that all labor was communal here. That's how it would have been in an African village. Wherever Africans were enslaved in the world, there were runaways who escaped permanently and lived in free independent settlements. These people and their descendants are known as Maroons. The term probably comes from the Spanish cimarron, meaning feral livestock, fugitive slave, or something wild and defiant. Maroonage, the process of extricating oneself from slavery, took place all over Latin America and the Caribbean, in the slave islands of the Indian Ocean, in Angola and other parts of Africa. But until recently, the idea that Maroons also existed in North America has been rejected by most historians. In 2004, when I started talking about large permanent Maroon settlements in the Great Dismal Swamp, most scholars thought I was nuts, says Sayers. They thought in terms of runaways who might hide in the woods or swamps for a while until they got caught, or who might make it to freedom on the Underground Railroad with the help of Quakers and abolitionists. By downplaying American maroonage and valorizing white involvement in the Underground Railroad, historians have shown a racial bias, in Sayer's opinion, a reluctance to acknowledge the strength of black resistance and initiative. They've also revealed the shortcomings of their methods. Historians are limited to source documents. When it comes to maroons, there isn't that much on paper, but that doesn't mean their story should be ignored or overlooked. As archaeologists, we can read it in the ground. Sayers first heard about the Dismal Swamp Maroons from one of his professors at the College of William and Mary in Williamsburg, Virginia. They were smoking cigarettes after class in late 2001. Sayers proposed to do his dissertation on the archaeology of 19th century agriculture. Stifling a yawn, Professor Marley Brown III asked him what he knew about the Maroons of the Great Dismal Swamp and suggested this would make a more interesting dissertation project. It sounded great, says Sayers. I had no idea what I was getting into. He started doing archival research on the Great Dismal Swamp. He found scattered references to Maroons dating back to the early 1700s. The first accounts described runaway slaves and Native Americans raiding farms and plantations and then disappearing back into the swamp with stolen livestock. In 1714, Alexander Spotswood, the colonial lieutenant governor of Virginia, described the dismal swamp as a no-man's land, to which loose and disorderly people daily flock. Since Africans and African Americans were not referred to as people in the records of 18th century Virginia, this suggests that poor whites were also joining the swamp communities. In 1728, William Byrd II led the first survey into the Great Dismal Swamp to determine the Virginia-North Carolina boundary. He encountered a family of Maroons, describing them as mulattoes, and was well aware that others were watching and hiding. It is certain many slaves shelter themselves in this obscure part of the world. Byrd, an aristocratic Virginian, loathed his time in the swamp. Never was rum, that cordial of life, found more necessary than it was in this dirty place. From the 1760s until the Civil War, runaway slave ads in the Virginia and North Carolina newspapers often mentioned the Dismal Swamp as the likely destination, and there was persistent talk of permanent maroon settlements in the morass. British traveler J.F.D. Smythe, writing in 1784, gleaned this description. 
Runaway Negroes have resided in these places for 12, 20, or 30 years and upwards, subsisting themselves in the swamp upon corn, hogs, and fowls. On higher ground, they have erected habitations and cleared small fields around them. The most comprehensive work that Sayers found was a 1979 dissertation by an oddball historian named Hugo Prosper Leeming. He was a white Unitarian minister and civil rights activist who managed to get accepted into a black Muslim temple in Chicago and wore a fez with his Unitarian robes. Leeming surveyed local and state records related to the Dismal Swamp and scoured unpublished local histories, memoirs, and novels for references to Maroons. In his dissertation, later published as a book, he presents a detailed account of Maroon history in the swamp, with a list of prominent chiefs and vivid descriptions of Africanized religious practices. His interpretations are stretchy, but I like the book, and it was useful on the history, says Sayers. When it came to the archaeology,